Good morning. Our first reading this morning is Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. And our second reading is Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 30. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he searches our hearts no, and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. 
And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you, Tim. Good morning, everyone. Sarah and I, from time to time, uh, like to let our hair down. One of the ways in which we do that is to watch a television show that we really enjoy. It's a comedy, and what you have to do is work out whether the person is telling the truth or a lie. And we just watched an episode of this recently in which uh, a comedian, Joe Brand, told her story. It was her birthday. And every year, her husband bought her a birthday cake, only he every year got her a cake that she did not like. So this year, she chose to go to a kind of UK version of Coles, and she chose her own cake. She chose a green and yellow cake that she liked the look of, and the lady there said to her, well, would you like us to put some icing on it with a message for you? And in her dark humor, she said yes. I'd like you to write these words. You are an old woman, and you will die soon. It made her laugh. She thought it would make her friends laugh too. And so the day came of her birthday, and she picked up the cake and took it home. And with her friends there, uh, she opened the box, and there was the same green and yellow cake. Only the message on this icing was, Happy Retirement, Wendy. An identical cake. So sadly, Wendy had received the same cake <laughs> with the other message. Now, it got me to thinking about which message I'd prefer to find on, let's say, my last birthday cake at the end of life. Happy retirement, or you are a very old person and you're going to die soon. In a way, it's looking at making the last, uh, the best of the, the last years uh, on earth or looking forward to the future with hope. In fact, looking beyond this physical life into eternity where a place has been secured for you. And we begin this final sermon in our series on building a biblical ethic with the end of life in mind. At the end of this physical life, each and every one of us will find ourselves before God. It's true for every single one of us without exception. This is the big question. Will you be welcomed by God? Uh, this week I met a man who said to me with confidence, I do not believe in God. That's because he has not met him yet. He will meet him whether it will be in this lifetime or at the end of this physical lifetime, I do not know. But I wonder whether God will welcome him. Will God welcome you? Well, it all depends on one thing, how you respond to Jesus. Because if you fall on your knees and call Jesus Savior and Lord, you will be secure. Call him a liar, or a lunatic, or maybe a great moral teacher, and that is not enough. Jesus Christ calls us to follow him, 
trust him for forgiveness, obey him as Lord, and to build our lives and our future on his word. In five weeks, we've been reading the Bible, and in it, we have looked and sought to establish and build and live out a biblical ethic. And five sermons is far too short for us to build a firm biblical foundation. But I do hope, at the very least, we've got the conversation started in a meaningful way for each of us about how we might strive to glorify God here at Victory Anglican Church. Would you pray with me? Our Lord God and Heavenly Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, um, I've got three points for us to think about uh, this week, but I just want to reiterate the big idea before we go into that part of the message, because you will recall that we have been seeking to build a biblical ethic, thinking about in the beginning how God has made us alive, both male and female, connected in singleness and in marriage, devoted to the bearing and raising of children, that we might be eternally established as his family forever. That's the big idea. And this week we look at what it means to be established into eternity as his family forever. And my first point is this. It's entitled, Now But Not Yet. You put up a stocking at Christmas Eve in the expectation that on Christmas Day it will be full of gifts. You put your deposit on a house in the expectation that one day you will turn it into a home. You promise until death do us part. And you live by faith through the Holy Spirit who lives in you. And as followers of Jesus, we know now in part, but we do not yet fully know it. For the context of this life is the life to come. We live in the now, but we look forward to the not yet. And in Revelation chapter 21 through 22, as we saw in our first talk, we have this beautiful explanation of what the new creation will be like. Last time we looked at the beginning of chapter 21, and this week I want to take us to the end and the crossover into chapter 22, because in these words, and you can look it up if you wish to join me, verse 22 of chapter 21, God and his son Jesus will give eternal light into the lives of his people. From verse 24, Israel and the nations in his church will bring him glory for all eternity. Verse 27, those named by Jesus, whose names are in the book of life that belongs to him, will be cleansed from our sins forever, that we may dwell with him and he with us. And then into chapter 22, we're reminded again and again that the curse of death is gone forever, and that we shall reign with him eternally. And those are the promises for the not yet as we live in the now. Jesus will bring about a new creation. 
And it will be a time in which sadness and suffering and death will no longer feature. In this life, however, God will continue to grow us and grow us in faith through both times of joy and times of suffering. And sometimes joy in suffering. And I have to say that as you've wonderfully come back to me and shared some of your stories and reflections as we've been seeking to build a biblical ethic together, I know it has been a hard journey for some of us. Do please come on Wednesday night where you have questions that have been raised in your mind, thoughts and feelings that you want to think through a little more when David Robertson and Ruth Barnes and myself come together for an evening of Q&A in building a biblical ethic. Feel free to take advantage of the resources that we've uh, put connections to on your handout sheet you would have received on the way in. Not least of which I want to commend to you, of course, Anglicare as our wonderful partner in mission who go to places that you and I very often cannot go. Um, let me add my weight to the invitation to explore becoming a volunteer with and for Anglicare. And also to consider some of those other partners like the Significant Marriage and Diamond Women. And please, to, in speaking to these matters, if feelings and thoughts have been stirred up in you, take advantage of those who are putting together time after the service to pray with you uh, in the back of the auditorium. And I hope and I have prayed that God and your ministry team will be gracious with you as you have been with us. But it's right in this now but not yet to calibrate according to God's view of people. And God says that people are precious. We are made in his image, according to Genesis 2, verse 7. And value is not based on what we do or what we say or what we contribute, but our value is in who we are. God has given us the ability to know him and to enjoy him and to glorify him just as we are in Christ. And this gives us our value because we are fulfilling our purpose according to the nature he has given us. We are people with nature and purpose and people are precious because our nature and purpose has been given to us by God. Not to provide pleasure and productivity in a selfish or secular sense, but rather to make and maintain mutual love relationships that reflect the character of the three persons in God, of God in who he is and to share that with one another for the good of others. We've been made for mutual love in Jesus and it's made possible and modeled by the one who is God's son, Jesus himself, who loves God and loves people perfectly. And when he says to you and me, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, he gives us the ability to do it through the power of his spirit who lives in us. Mutual love will be the way in which God relates to us and we will relate to one another in the new creation. So it's a great gift of God that we can learn how to do that in this life in preparation for the not yet. 
So what does it mean for us practically to live our lives now in anticipation of heaven and the new creation when Jesus returns? What does it mean for us when we face our season at the end of life? A season in which we can be slower and suffer more and sometimes be much harder to live with. Our Western society has recently adopted a fresh approach to this, one in which dying with dignity and voluntary assisted dying seem to be in vogue. And so now I want to speak to this matter of euthanasia. This is my second point, euthanasia. Uh, the word euthanasia is a Greek word, as I've said before, according to Big Fat Greek Wedding, every word comes from a Greek word, but this word really does, and euthanasia means good death. But I'd like us to consider first, is death good? And who decides if a person should die? Is it God or is it us? The Bible testifies to God's good gift of life. Death is bad. Death is an intrusion into God's creation. It is not good. Jesus, the Son of God, we're told in John chapter 11, wept when his friend Lazarus had died. So is death good? In Psalm 146, our perspective is lifted to that of God himself. The words of his spirit through his author, describing how God is the God of heaven and earth and the seas, how he is reliable and praiseworthy in his wisdom, how his wisdom rules over human wisdom. Wisdom, we're told by the teacher in Ecclesiastes, begins with fear of God and not fear of death in Ecclesiastes 12. And I was prompted by a friend to read through Ecclesiastes 10 to 12, which does indeed show us that in all experience, life is good. So when Job, in the midst of great suffering, weighty and poignant as we read his experience of struggling with even his day of conception in Job 3, when Job is told by his wife, do you still retain your integrity, curse God and die? He responds to her by saying, you speak as a foolish woman speaks. Should we expect uh, and accept only good from God and not adversity? Death is an intrusion into God's good order. But does it have the last word? We're told in Psalm 90 that Every one of our days is numbered by God. We're told in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 8, that even our day of death belongs to him. And for us, in Christ, our body and soul belong to God because we were bought at the price of the blood of his Son. We saw this uh, a couple of weeks ago as we read 1 Corinthians 6. We were also assured that we should glorify him. As a friend said to me, both in triumph and tragedy. But let, let us take a step back for a minute and think about killing. Is killing justified? And if so, why? Because when we look at the Old Testament, 
we see that killing is justified to keep God and his people holy or set apart. To ensure that God's people are kept separated from idolatry and immorality. In fact, the taking of human life by a human hand under God's direction is good. Up until God came in the person of Jesus to reconcile us to him forever where the Son of God suffered violence and violation in our place, the greatest act of violation, killing under human hands. And God is the one who has authority over both life and death, so he decides. Jesus, we are told, laid down his knife, but had the authority to take it up again. He is God. And so Jesus, as God, was entitled to lay down his life and take it up again. So the question is, do we have that entitlement? To whom does life belong? To God, we as his creatures, or to ourselves? And it's at this point that I want us to think a little more deeply into what it means to take life by your hand, and by my hand. Firstly, by your hand. Uh, during interpersonal conflict, we have two extremes on a spectrum and a whole range in between. Um, in summary, we can move into the fight space or the fights place if, a space if, um, if we're not in the realm of mediation and arbitration. And so when we think about people who fight, they tend to move into a place of aggression. It might be in terms of thoughts or even prayers or words, and then it might get physical. And then ultimately, that might at the extreme manifest itself in the act of killing or murder. On the other end of the spectrum, we have the flight response, which might be avoidance and, and running away from a conflict or, or in its very most extreme form, again, killing but in the form of total withdrawal, that is, to die by your own hand, suicide. And those extreme ends of murder and suicide are, in, in a way, the either side face of the same coin. Sometimes killing can be motivated by mutual love. It might be in order to protect the vulnerable, or it might be in the circumstance of just war. And God's provisions for killing are aligned with strict situational ethics drawn from his word. But I have seen no evidence in the Bible in my years of reading it to suggest that killing is provisioned for as an avoidance of pain or suffering in this life. So exploring a situational ethic for assisted dying with dignity is a really hard topic. The preserving of life is good. We read this from the outset in Deuteronomy chapter 30. But what about death? What about if someone is in pain? What about if someone is suffering? Uh, my very first funeral some years ago was with a lovely lady. <laughs> she was suffering a very aggressive form of cancer. I was very nervous when I went to visit her and her family, and so I sit down, have my cup of tea, and I nervously said to her, look, I'm sorry, this is my first funeral. And quick as a die, she came back to me, and she said, don't worry, it's mine too. <laughs> Isn't that lovely? 
we worked prayerfully and carefully together to ensure that we honored the Lord Jesus both in her life and her death. Her suffering and how he sustained her through it showed his character and her character. Suffering can grow us in perseverance. Indeed, the Lord Jesus himself, we're told in Hebrews 2, was perfected through suffering. So are there times for a preservation of life or an accelerated death? We can ask ourselves questions concerning our loved ones in that space. Will they recover? Will they be fully restored in their recovery? Or will they not recover? Will they suffer through to the end? Will their suffering not even be visible to those of us around them? And then what options are available to preserve their life or to prolong their death? These days, we can use a variety of ways to sustain the life of a person for a short time or for the duration. We can withhold ways to artificially preserve life, such as we see in the ICU where the life support machine is kept on or can be turned off. And what do we do with secondary infections when we use a treatment to kill that infection so that somebody continue, but continues, but, but then the infection comes back, and then it comes back again and again? What about withdrawing treatments artificially, preserving life, or killing those infections? Sometimes these are referred to as passive strategies for the end of life. And like, I can imagine all of us in some way, shape, or form through those known to us may well have been faced with these questions. I know I have in my own family. But what about those events called active treatment strategies for the end of life? Introducing those ways to manage pain and then turning up the dial just a little bit more and more until that person just ebbs away. Have you heard of that? Or introducing ways to artificially accelerate death like targeted toxins, which are authorized in other nations and have come to our nation as well and have been debated and passed in other states and are now being presented in our very own state of New South Wales. And what about the occasions on which those events might be manipulated by others to their own advantage and not to the advantage of the person who is unwell and at end of life? And do we think about the effect on those doctors involved in that process who have matters of conscience and righteous action? And for family members and extended family members who are impacted by those decisions? And these strategies can be used for those who are sick and for those who are old, but what about the young? And how are we to think about ethical birth control, the contraceptive pill, in the light of what we were speaking about last week, where a person in the womb is a person with nature and purpose? How do we think about what 
makes an unsustainable environment for a fertilized egg to settle? How do we think about other forms of contraceptive prophylactic? How do we think about the morning after pill? And IVF, a wonderful blessing, and yet with those, and I say carefully, embryos that are stored away having nature and purpose as precious people. What constitutes wisdom and discernment in these end-of-life spaces? I hope you don't expect me to answer all those questions in a sermon. (laughs) But it's so important, isn't it, that we think and pray these matters through together as a family and within our families to discern the good and pleasing will of God when someone may die by the hand of another. And then on the other end of the spectrum, what about by my own hand? Dying with dignity by my own hand is respected and honored in some other cultures and has been really honored in history. In Japan, the activity of seppuku, sometimes referred to as harikiri, the honorable death in the event of capture or defeat in battle or dishonorable circumstance, some cultures still see this as right action. You may remember in the Bible the story of Saul, how he came to his end in 1 Samuel 31, in which he tells his armor bearer to draw his sword and he falls on it so as not to fall into uncircumcised hands. Is that ethical? Dying by our own hand. My second funeral was a very different story to my first funeral. It was the other end of the spectrum. It was the funeral for a dear friend who took his own life after a long battle with mental health. He left a wife and family. He was a beautiful man, but he had very volatile mood swings. And one day, he got on a downer. Nothing was dignified about the aftermath of his decision just suffering. When we have beloved ones who have died by their own hand, it is tragic. The Lord reinforced this today for me as I read my update first thing this morning with him and saw that today is a commemoration of the day of the death of a loved one to a family known to us, a son who died by his own hand. I think all of us will have been or know someone impacted by suicide. And Saul is joined by his armor bearer. And in the scriptures, he's joined too by Abimelech and Hittothothel and Zimri and Samson. And so I ask, are we given words that will help us shape a biblical ethic for a situation like this? Well, it brings me to my third and final point, which is this. The challenge for us as God's people in these difficult situations to seek to grow old gracefully. And I want us to consider the reading we had from Romans chapter 8 here. God wants us to have assurance in building an ethic for our end of life. His Son and His Spirit enable us to grow old in this life, but to do it gracefully. And in Romans 8 we're told that the days of our lives get harder as we get older. But also, 
verses 18 to 21, that the hard times now will never compare to the good times to come in the not yet. That in fact, sufferings in this lifetime are designed to give us an anticipation and looking forward to the future in eternity. That our retirement hope is one in which the promised peace is an eternal peace. Verses 22 to 25. And then when we grow so weary that we feel unable to continue, we can trust that the Spirit of God within us will groan with us and creation and give us words to pray when we cannot. That He will care for us and that He knows it can be really hard and He will be the one who presents us to God. 27 to 28. And we're assured in those last verses, 29 to 30, that God knows what he was doing with us from the very beginning of the journey. And he has set out to shape his children's lives like that of his son Jesus for all eternity. And so my conclusion to this message and conclusion to this series is to say these words, that life is God's to give and life is God's to take away. End of life is not ours. It is His. It is a sin to take life when it is not in accordance with God's purposes. But the taking of anyone's life confessed in Christ is not unforgivable. Bring it to Jesus and he will forgive you. He can forgive you if you will lay it before his feet. It's most important to remember the eternal life on offer beyond this one as we consider end of life. Because to die physically in Christ is to be with him in heaven and then to be with him in the new creation when he returns. He will not let us grow old and cold like King David, but rather he will stir up the fire of the Spirit in our hearts and very being in Christ. And he gives us one another in our families and in our church family to journey together. And what a privilege it is to journey in the realm of palliative care together as we look to the end of life in the context of eternity. In my privileged position to walk with a dear brother who was riddled with cancer, as we, his friends and his wife, gathered round his bedside in fully protective gear because he had the infection on his way to glory, he was there fast asleep and we had nothing from him, but he loved to sing songs of praise and we'd get to a little bit in a song. And suddenly he would rouse and wake up and sit up and sing, Thine be the glory, risen conquering sun. And then he'd ever away again. And that was our experience of hours by his bedside. What a privilege. To walk with a couple in which a dear sister in the Lord had a very aggressive form of cancer. And to the disdain and confusion of her family chose not to be treated for it, but to do that journey in expectation of being received into the arms of the Lord Jesus. 
And I'm sure that each one of us has stories to share about the profound privilege it is to walk those end-of-life days with loved ones of ours. Be assured that even when our loved ones or even ourselves lose our faculties and sense of self to the extent that we are unrecognizable as a person, when those faculties have gone, God will always remember us. He never forgets his children, even when they forget themselves and lose their sense of self on the way. So brothers and sisters, we are known by him. And as we build a biblical ethic together, it is to know and grow in the way of mutual love, created alive by God, both male and female, connected in singleness and in marriage, devoted to the bearing and raising of children, that we may be established into eternity, his family, for his glory, forever. And God's people said, Amen. Thank you.